When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Policy and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The infrastructure bill will create jobs that we desperately need in this country, good-paying jobs. We need to go all out a green, renewable economy and all of the infrastructure to make that happen. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Somehow it's Friday, which means only four sleeps until the U.S. leaves Afghanistan. And the president's advisors are telling him the threat of another terror attack in Kabul is credible and specific. We'll talk about it in a moment. With Congressman Jake Auchincloss, Democrat from Massachusetts, a Marine who fought in Afghanistan. Later, we'll get an update from Bloomberg defense correspondent Tony Capaccio, who's been at the Pentagon all week for this. Also, our conversation this hour with Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institution. He's got an op-ed urging the Biden administration to not accelerate America's withdrawal, and it may be too late for that. So welcome to the Friday edition of Sound On, as we keep an eye on the situation in Kabul. This is the most dangerous part of the mission. This is the retrograde period of the mission. And what that means is that this is the period of time when uh, the military, commanders on the ground, and forces begin to move not just troops home, but also equipment home. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki a short time ago briefing reporters at the White House. The withdrawal still set for August 31st. Psaki reiterating what we heard from the Pentagon earlier today that the threat of another terror attack will only increase as we approach August 31st. The national security team the president met with this morning advised the president and vice president that another terror attack in Kabul is likely. Uh, And they are uh, taking maximum force protection measures at the Kabul airport and in the surrounding areas with our forces uh, as a result. Very similar language earlier today from Pentagon spokesman John Kirby. And with that in mind, as we head into this weekend, a potentially dangerous weekend, we bring in Congressman Jake Auchincloss, Democrat from Massachusetts, who served in Afghanistan as a Marine Corps captain. He led an infantry unit in Helmand Province and supports still President Biden's plan to withdraw, as we've heard in previous conversations here on Bloomberg Radio. So we wanted to bring him back. And he's here now. Congressman Auchincloss, welcome back to Bloomberg Radio. Good to be back. I've had a chance to speak with you a couple of times since the fall of Kabul, and you have stood by President Biden's plan to withdraw troops by the end of the month. As a Marine, I'm sure you're heartbroken, however, by what happened yesterday, and I wonder if you think this is something that could have been or should have been prevented. The United States Marines are no better friend, no worse enemy. Our Afghan allies have seen over the last several weeks the United States Marines is no better friend. They have been pulling them to freedom at HKIA. In the months and years to follow, ISIS-K is going to understand that the United States Marines are no worse enemy. We will get justice for this atrocity. 
and the perpetrators uh, will be hunted down and killed. How do we do that? We heard President Biden speak to that end last evening. Considering what we know about ISIS-K, maybe I should say how little we know about ISIS-K and what took place yesterday, how do you retaliate against a group like that? The United States over the last two decades has evolved a highly sophisticated counterterrorism operation. It really has two arms, to put it simply. One is an intelligence arm and one is a special operations arm. So intel to understand where and who you're trying to target and a special operations arm that can surgically insert, neutralize a target and extract within a matter of hours. We have an operation that is able to do this in dozens of countries throughout Africa, Middle East and Central Asia. Is it easier when you've got thousands of troops on the ground? Yes, of course it is. But it is still possible without that boots on the ground footprint. Uh, I would also add that although our human intelligence is degraded by not having troops on the ground, our signals intelligence has improved markedly over the last several years as technology has gotten better. And we actually have the Taliban as self-interested party in also trying to uh, bring to heel the worst elements of ISIS-K. Your Republican colleague from Wisconsin, Congressman Mike Gallagher, who also served as Marine, uh, joined us on the program yesterday. I'm sure you're aware of his legislation that would require troops to stay in Afghanistan until all Americans are evacuated. Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is calling on Speaker Pelosi to bring you all back to vote on this bill. Would you vote against it? All Americans who want to leave Afghanistan and who pass a security clearance are going to be able to leave in a matter of days. It's down to a couple of hundred. We have gotten 100,000 people out of Afghanistan in the last month in probably the greatest military airlift operation in modern history. We can get the remaining Americans out in a short order. Therefore, you would not make that requirement for troops to stay. It's, it's a political stunt, to, to be candid, because the question of whether we're going to get Americans out has never been in, in for dispute. No American is going to be left behind in Afghanistan who does not want to be in Afghanistan. The Taliban do not have a say in that. We do not leave Americans behind uh, in that country when we're leaving. Now, there are some Americans who may not want to leave, and there are some Americans who bluntly uh, may have been there for nefarious purposes that we have to be cautious about and need further investigation. But we are able to evacuate all Americans who want to leave in very short order. And indeed, the State Department over the last several months issued almost two dozen warnings to Americans to leave uh, quite early in this withdrawal and have continued to work with NGOs and directly with those Americans in isolated areas yeah. to get them out. It Even as be. we transition away from a military evacuation, we still can do evacuations of our Afghan allies through NGOs uh, past the August 31st deadline. I mean, we have leverage that we can use to keep that evacuation stream running. It's going to be more challenging, of course, but the Taliban need to be able to access their foreign currency reserves. They need access to the international donor community. They need technical support in running the airport. Uh, we still have leverage. It would be precedent setting to have Congress making a tactical decision like that as opposed to the commander in chief. I wonder, uh, Congressman Auchincloss, if you also believe, though, that it's time to reevaluate and reestablish the use of force in Congress. Without question, and I've been a very strong advocate for repealing and replacing the authorizations for the use of military force, because Congress, under Article One of the Constitution, is the body that declares war. And we've really abdicated that responsibility since Vietnam. 
we need to reclaim it. No president should be able to sustain uh, boots on the ground without congressional approval and without a clear explanation of what the mission is and what the end game is. That has really been the core national security failure of the last 20 years. What began as a counterterrorism mission, relatively well-scoped, relatively successful, was allowed to mutate under Bush and Rumsfeld into a boondoggle of a counterinsurgency mission, where we kept on thinking time, troops, and treasure with the hope, with the sunk cost bias, that with just additional measures, we could finally make it work. Well, it really could never work because there was no political partner in Kabul to counter the insurgents with. Congressman, you know what it's like to be in uniform as a Marine in Afghanistan. Is it fair to ask our Marines to stand on that wall around the airport now, knowing that that area is a target for terrorism? U.S. Marines take great pride in being the ones who execute the hardest challenges the President of the United States gives them. Will it be Marines to conduct the over-the-horizon, as the President and Pentagon have described it, over-the-horizon missions going potentially back into Afghanistan to fight terrorism? Well... As a former reconnaissance officer who, who trained for over-the-horizon operations, I would love that to be the case. And, of course, there would be a, a fitting justice to it. But that is not a decision that a member of Congress makes. That will be made yeah. by uh, the chain of command based on what is, is most appropriate for the mission. Well, as we prepare for that, that new mission, over-the-horizon, Congressman, where would those be born? Would that be a carrier-based mission? Would we come from elsewhere in the Middle East? Where will we stage our counterterrorism activity? Well, that is the critical national security question of, of the coming months. I have been questioning for weeks now why we withdrew from Bagram Air Base as early as we did. Bagram Air Base is a key counterterrorism installation. It was a prison for a number of terrorists who have now been freed with the Taliban advance. Bagram would have been an important installation for us for our CT mission. What our footprint is now uh, is going to be an important consideration for the administration to determine and then to communicate clearly to Congress. Would it be worth the fight and the potential loss of life to retake Bagram? There are members of Congress calling for that to happen. I don't have access to the intelligence and the real-time operational insight to be able to answer that in a way that I would feel like is responsible. I don't want to just armchair pine on that issue. Mm -hmm. That is certainly a worthy question to ask. And the administration needs to give a cogent answer in its classified briefings. With the next couple of days in mind, this coming weekend, the beginning of next week, Congressman, how concerned are you about getting everyone else out? And that includes our troops without seeing again what we saw yesterday. Will the threat increase as we draw nearer to August 31st? I'm gravely concerned. I don't want to speak about threat level because, again, that is a determination made by people with access to real-time intelligence. But... You don't have to be uh, a four-star general to understand that the most vulnerable parts of a withdrawal are the very, very end, when you're collapsing the, the perimeter, when security is having to draw down. And I'm gravely concerned. It, it is one of many reasons why I support the president's commitment to wrap up this evacuation expeditiously. We have got to remove, uh, for force protection reasons, this this military presence that we have at the airport. You've said before there is no military solution. It must be a political one. You still feel that way today. Absolutely. And again, I, I just think it's really important to differentiate between counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. Counterterrorism is a military mission. That does have a military solution. We knock down doors and you neutralize the terrorists. Mm -hmm. 
Counterinsurgency is about nation building. It's about creating a flourishing civil society, confidence in the rule of law, the provision of basic services, an economy in which low-level fighters can access uh, meaningful improvements in the standard of living. This is what worked in Colombia over the course of 50 years and, and for which their president earned a Nobel Peace Prize. The Afghan president fled the country at the first sign of danger. So we just never had the political partnership in Kabul to really counter the insurgents with the ingredients necessary to build a nation. Lastly, Congressman, I wonder if you've been speaking with your fellow veterans. I know this is a personal time. It's a tragic time uh, for Marines to watch these headlines. Have you been in touch with your men from Afghanistan? I've had contact with a number of fellow veterans, including people with whom I served in Afghanistan. We've been helping with uh, getting interpreters out, with resettlement for refugees. I've heard from a number of people who saw my op-ed in the Washington Post defending the president's decision that they appreciated that I would take that stand because even in 2012, so many of us saw that we were there in pursuit of a mission that could not be solved with force of arms. I appreciate your being so forthright with us through a difficult time, Congressman. Thanks for talking with us again. Thank you for your service. Always good to be on. Thank you for joining us in the Friday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. As we make our way forward, we're going to be talking about what's going on at the Pentagon coming up here. Next, we'll talk more about planning and the fog of war that has made this such a difficult story to cover. Did you hear there was only one blast yesterday? Bloomberg's Pentagon correspondent Tony Capaccio is up next. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. At this time yesterday, the Pentagon was reporting two blasts in Kabul. You heard it right here on Bloomberg. Two explosions. One they said at the Abbey Gate at the airport, the other at the Barron Hotel, remember? This morning, though, General Hank Taylor brought a correction to the briefing room. We're not sure how that report uh, was provided incorrectly, but we do know it's not any surprise Uh, that in the confusion of very dynamic events like this can cause information sometimes to be misreported or garbled. We felt it was important uh, to correct uh, the record uh, with you all here. There's only one blast. Tony Capaccio is Bloomberg's reporter who covers the Pentagon and asks questions in these important briefings, and he's with us now. Tony, thanks for being here. You've had a week. Uh, What did you make of this update, this change in the story? What does it tell us about the situation on the ground? It tells us, A, that the the explosion must have resonated, must have echoed quite uh, quite a bit in the area there. It was in the Abbey Gate area because the hotel was only a few blocks away. Uh, This is not an unusual situation here. You may your reader your viewers may remember that the late 1980s there when the uh, when we shot down an Iranian airplane by mistake the initial reports from the uh, Pentagon the Joint Chiefs of Staff chairman said the plane was approaching the ship that eventually shot at it when that turned out not to be the case so 
this is to be expected. It was good that they came out and said it ahead of time. Yep. But I'm thinking that place was an echo chamber, that area, and that's probably what happened. Well, it also speaks to the confusion there, right, Tony? I guess I brought this to you because you know more than most how difficult it is to cover a story like this, and a lot of times we get bad information in the outset. Well, especially this. They don't have an organized public affairs unit down there at the Kabul airfield, you know, getting out of reliable information. This is clutch and grab with cell phones, Twitter, and masses of people surrounding not only any reporters there, but also the units. So I wouldn't make too much of it. I mean, the tragedy was the people killed absolutely wounded. The initial reports usually always wrong. Well, that's, that's, that's the point that we're trying to make here, or at least I am, Tony, because there's probably going to be more of this. And I just wonder... What's on your mind as we head into this weekend? What kind of planning the Pentagon might be making? And I realize they're not being very specific about this, very detailed about it, but John Kirby made clear they've got credible threats they're dealing with here. They've got credible threats they're dealing with, but also I'm thinking there's greater communication with the Taliban, and you might see a show of force by the Taliban over the next two or three days in, in the lockstep with the United States, got a visible show of force to show the world that they're also opposed to what was going on. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. And then there's also going to be more intense flights over Kabul airfield with drones and these AC-130 gunships that have great precision cameras. They can spot people on the ground with handheld weapons possibly aiming at airplanes. Wow. How much of a threat is that, uh, Tony? John Kirby has spoken about that. They've taken shots at some of our planes, but... Until now, they haven't had the firepower to make a difference, is what I understand. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, look, I don't think the we. I don't. I, I'm 99 percent sure we did not provide the Afghan army with stingers or man, uh, man portable ground air missiles. Because and that's what it would take. That kind of thing. They don't have any. They don't have any aircraft. So what the the threat would be? RPGs, possibly to being shot at helicopters or one of the planes taking off. And I think. The U.S. has got the range of those RPGs calibrated and have pushed out cordons or guard posts. So that you could pushing it out beyond the range of what those RPGs can range to, but they could be effective, and they could be fired. Wow. And we understand that some, if not all, of our aircraft have been using uh, countermeasures. Are, 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 they, are they shooting off chafe when they take off? How, how do you do that, or is it just the distancing that you're talking about? So I've been on many, many C-17 flights. These things can fly, can take off on a dime and then shoot, shoot very fast up in the air, very fast. They have sensors on there that could pick up infrared missiles. They have flare, they have flare and chase systems, but they've got pretty sophisticated countermeasure systems for detecting a, a rocket or a missile in flight. And C-17s have been in battle zones throughout the world of the, since 1991 when they were first fielded. Those pilots know how to take off on a dime and shoot way up. This is fascinating. This is why we wanted Tony to join us today, because he lives this stuff, not just when these are mainstream stories. Tony, talk to me more about your thought there on on the U.S. military working with the Taliban this weekend. Would that be going after the people who did this yesterday or, or, or some other show of force that you have in mind? I, I think it's all speculation, but it's within the realm of possibility. It's a show of force outside the airport, just basically with cameras on, 
armed Taliban, maybe with the United States close by, just to show the world that they're there for the last hours, last couple of days, to help the United States get out so they can take over the airfield. I mean, it'd be a final kind of thumb in your nose at the U.S., but it's in, in the realm of possibility. I don't think they're sharing intelligence right now on who did the bombing. I mean, that's going to come eventually, but whoever did that bombing, they've escaped. They're, they've dispersed, and that's going to take a real effort if we're going to track them. So the president, I thought, raised expectations a little too high yesterday when he, he said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll seek you out wherever. Yeah. Wherever means where you have people on the ground providing intelligence to strike with Tomahawk cruise missiles, drones, or commando teams. Tony Capaccio, Bloomberg Pentagon reporter, is going to come back with us a little bit later on this hour. We could, we've all agreed we could do an hour with Tony uh, because he's got a lot of great information that we want to be uh, talking to him about coming up. Next, though, we're going to talk the timeline here with Michael O'Hanlon, the foreign policy expert at the Brookings Institution. He's urging President Biden to resist the urge to accelerate our withdrawal in an op-ed we'll talk about next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. As we turn to the op-ed that was splashed across pages, front pages of USA Today across the country, Biden's blundered Afghanistan withdrawal requires keeping military and country. The words of Michael O'Hanlon director of research, senior fellow foreign policy at the Brookings Institution and author of the book, The Art of War in an Age of Peace. Michael writes, the temptation will be to accelerate America's withdrawal, following, of course, what we saw yesterday and that of our allies. He says that would be a mistake. Michael, thank you for being with us. And what do you mean by keeping the military in country? Thank you for having me. Well, you know, we've been talking for weeks that we probably won't be able to get all of the Afghans who are most threatened by the Taliban or potentially threatened uh, out yeah. of the country by the end of the month. And uh, I still feel that that's the case and that in some ways the stakes are now even greater because we need to make it pretty clear to the world we're not being driven out by this. And a false narrative could easily emerge that we are, that we are in fact uh, running with our tails between our legs because the ISIS bombing uh, eliminated any further doubt we might have had about the date, and it, which was always President Biden's date, not something written in stone or in any deal we have with the Taliban. And the deal we have with the Taliban, by the way, uh, they violated multiple times. So my feeling is we have a loyalty to Afghan friends, not to mention the thousand or so or several hundred Americans still there. Right. May still be some stranded next week. We also have uh, an obligation or a strong interest in showing that we are not going to be pushed out by extremist or terrorist organizations. I'm not saying you do everything in, in life for credibility, mm -hmm. but I do know that when ISIS took a lot of Iraq and Syria in 2014, they used that success against our friends, especially the Iraqi government, as a motivator, as a recruiting device. Then they got you know followers from 100 countries around the world. They, then they, it, they infiltrated into the refugee flows into Europe and set off all those bombs and you know tragic events in Europe in those years. In other words, they used the perceived victory to their great advantage. And so I want to take away that option, even if it's just a few more days. You know, uh, I, we can't get everybody out who might want to leave. And we're also going to have to work with the Taliban or try to pressure the Taliban and incentivize them to be a little more moderate than they had been 25 years ago. There's a chance that'll work. So it's not all about, you know, it's not all about the evacuation. It's also about what comes next. And, and sure. I don't want to just dwell on the evacuation, but I, I would like to see us stay at least a few more days, get a, a few more of those friendly Afghans out and show the world and show these terrorists that we're not being driven out by them. 
And when you say that, you mean beyond August 31st, not not a few days from now, correct? Correct, correct. Beyond August 31st. Yeah. You know, I, well, I almost feel like it's a, I mean, I don't like to do a lot of things in international affairs as sort of a, a, a test of our resoluteness or resolve, but this one may fall into that category. You know, the uh-huh. Taliban are saying it's a red line that we get out by Tuesday, and I just don't like being issued dictums and dictates and red lines by terrorist organizations. Well, no, uh, and, you're and, echoing and, the concerns of a lot of people, Michael, and, and, you know, it might seem counterintuitive to some, but there is a thought that what happened yesterday requires us to stay beyond August 31st, because whether it's Americans who are still there or our Afghan allies, it, 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 it underscores the extreme danger that they will be in after next Tuesday. Right, especially if we seem unable to come to their defense thereafter. So I want the Taliban and, I mean, ISIS is sort of just a murderous organization with no particular strategy or discipline, so I'm not sure how much they are persuadable. But I want the Taliban to know that while we are going to try to develop a semi-workable relationship with them in the future, and we're willing to think about how to do that, uh, we are not going to let them set the terms for those kinds of interactions, even even on their own soil. And we're going to be watching carefully how they treat Americans, pro-American Afghans, women and minorities. And these uh, decisions they make will set the terms for not only whether we give them diplomatic recognition, but whether we allow them access to their bank accounts, whether we yeah. give them any humanitarian assistance, and whether we strike them militarily, at least you know from, from the air, in places where they might not want to be hit. Um, so I, I just want to sort of get our, a little bit of our swagger back on this. Uh, and uh, even though it's a tragedy and we've not won the war, um, the Taliban need to continue to be reminded that, that we have a lot of tools to employ against them as well. We're talking with Michael O'Hanlon from the Brookings Institution about his op-ed. You write that leaving now, or at least on the 31st, would signal to ISIS-K, as well as the Taliban, that we don't have the stomach to stand up to them. So what could we do to send the opposite signal? Is it just staying around, or is it in fact finding who did that yesterday, that the suicide bombing yesterday? I don't know how productive the latter will be. We should try. Uh, I'm just not predicting any great success. And mm-hmm. I think that ISIS has been our enemy all along, and we've never had any particular restraint uh, towards them, nor should we. Uh, you know, I think it's useful to send the Taliban a message, as I think President Biden did pretty well yesterday, that we're going to do what we have to if we find any perpetrators or planners. And that that implies on Afghan soil, right? So the Taliban is not going to be able to claim the sovereign right to deny us access to airspace if we find an ISIS target. And we can implicate that target in an attack on Americans like that of yesterday. So I think that message was was worth sending. You know, my sense is the Taliban really don't want to be implicated in global terrorism. They will be content to run their own country as they see fit, and they want some help along the way. So I think we have some ability to modify their behavior, at least at the margin, and that's what we should be trying to use now. So, Michael, tell us in in our remaining moment here what it is – uh, that the Taliban wants, and and do you buy this 2.0 argument that might find us actually working with a Taliban government as some sort of partner against terror? On the latter point, I'm not so convinced they're going to be partners. Uh, I think it would be enough just to have them not be enemies. I don't want them to cooperate with ISIS or al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. And they do have ties to al-Qaeda, you know, in their leadership and elsewhere. So we're going to have to watch that one closely. But I, I think we have no choice but to try to steer the Taliban towards a 2.0 because they did sort of win the war. And to the extent that we have human rights concerns uh, for the well-being of the Afghan people, 
it's going to be largely the Taliban that determine how those play out. And so our tools for influence are limited, but they're real. The Taliban are running a very poor country that needs help, and most of them don't want to live in the Stone Ages again like they might have been willing to before. So I think we've got some leverage. Leverage, says Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow, Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution. I appreciate the time here, Michael. You can find the op-ed at USA Today. Coming up, our Friday Reporters Roundtable. We'll bring back Justin Sink from the White House, Tony Capaccio from the Pentagon. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Headline on the terminal, deadly Kabul attack shakes Biden's Afghan exit strategy. White House correspondent Justin Sink with the byline, and he joins us now as part of our Friday Reporters Roundtable. And we're bringing Tony Capaccio back in as well, our Pentagon correspondent, after a day that many will remember in political geopolitical and military history. To those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Justin Sink, it's great to have you with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Was that promise an overpromise? Is that something that's going to be played back for the next year while we look for these people? Well, I think one of the biggest you know questions and challenges facing the White House is how they're going to uh, bring the people, the, the ISIS-K terrorists that they've uh, sort of ascribed responsibility uh, mm-hmm. for the attack to justice when you know the U.S. plans to remove its military and diplomatic uh, presence from the country by next Tuesday. And it's going to be a real test of, I think, what one of the central premises or promises of of Joe Biden's decision to pull out of Afghanistan is, which is whether or not we can continue to run counterterrorism op- uh, operations in the country without a, a physical presence there. He and, and military leaders of the Pentagon have assured that they have this sort of over-the-horizon capability that they'll be able to monitor and deter uh, potential terrorist threats and, and, and sort of uh, handle it. But this is going to be a, a, a very quick and initial uh, test of that, that sort of theory. Tony, you cover the Pentagon, as uh, we discussed a little bit earlier this hour. Talk to us more about these over-the-horizon missions. I got into it briefly with Congressman Auchincloss at the beginning of the program. It's something he was very familiar with as a Marine. But once we are gone, whether it's next Tuesday, before or after that, where would these missions be sourced? Are we talking about drones in the air? Are we talking about aircraft off of aircraft carriers or actual bases in the Middle East? So over-the-horizon capabilities depend a lot on having some kind of discrete intelligence, ground intelligence, that can cue or direct a drone to circle an area repeatedly at high altitudes. They just can't aimlessly look down at an area. 
that's where you, you remember we took it took ten years to kill Osama bin Laden. That was painstaking interagency development based on they tracked his courier into Pakistan. So this is arduous work. He overpromised. Biden overpromised. I mean, I don't think the public's going to be satisfied with cruise missile Tomahawk cruise missiles. Our former counterterrorism weapon of choice being fired at some locations in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and then we declare we got them. You know, like remember when we got Saddam Hussein? Yeah. So I think he overpromised. It does depend on some good ground intelligence that helps cue the effort. Justin, can you give us a sense to the extent of your knowledge uh, of what Joe Biden is going through, the president behind the scenes here? He was emotional. Uh, apparently certainly somber in his address last night. But the American people typically do not know what the president knows. We don't know what awful thing he just heard, what briefing he just had, what information that is in his head that is keeping him up at night. How many briefings is he getting a day? How is his schedule being impacted by this? Yeah, I mean, I think what we've uh, certainly seen throughout the last uh, week plus that, that Afghanistan has really been plunged into chaos is that the president has been in fairly regular briefings. Uh, yesterday uh, was perhaps the most intense uh, version of that, where the president stayed in the situation room for most of the day until he came out and uh, addressed the nation. In the late afternoon, he had originally had meetings with the Israeli prime minister with governors all on the schedule, all that stuff got kind of pulled down and pushed off as, as he was going to those briefings. You asked about his uh, sort of mood personally. I, 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 he speaks, I think, authentically and personally about how as the father of a former uh, member of the military that he has sort of um, grappled with the, the personal toll of this yeah. as somebody who's lost family members uh, he has as well. And so, you know, I think he would say that, that his decision to pull out of Afghanistan in the first place was sort of driven by the, the desire not to put service members in harm's way. And so that makes, of course, what happened yesterday particularly uh, tragic. President made clear as he spoke to the American people, uh, Tony, yesterday that whatever the military needs, it will get. I've instructed the military Whatever they need, if they need additional force, I will grant it. But the military, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Joint Chiefs, the commanders in the field, have all contacted me one way or another, usually by letter, saying they subscribe to the mission as designed, to get as many people out as we can within the time frame that is allotted, Tony, is is that thought consistent uh, throughout the, the ranks at the Pentagon, at least the people you interface with, that August 31 is, in fact, the day they're telling him, Mr. President, this is the day to leave? Yeah, it's, it's consistent. That's the day to leave because of the threat. But then you've got another thing here. Give them what they want. Is that give them what they want up until next week? Or is that like a bigger budget? He was a little... That was a little unclear to me. Yeah, it could come back to haunt him. His defense budget for fiscal 2022 is uh, like a one a half a percent lower when adjusted for inflation than than the 21 request. So I'm not sure what he was talking about there, current or more long term. Justin Sink, do you have a sense of what he meant with that statement? Yeah, I think the president and. Press Secretary John Saki talked about this before, but in you know each of his conversations over the last couple of weeks has basically talked to his military leaders and asked them if they need particular resources, if they want to bring more troops um, 
into Afghanistan to, to sort of secure the airport as, as they work through the operations. Obviously, now we're at the, the point of starting to pull those folks out. But uh, Biden didn't necessarily want to bring uh, more soldiers in and was asked by the military, you know, to do so to authorize more troops going in. And so I think that this is sort of a more limited uh, promise to the to the idea of executing this evacuation to the, to the greatest extent possible by the, the 31st. Mm-hmm. As Tony mentioned, there's obviously an effort within the White House to to roll back the military budget to some extent. I'm not sure that's going to change either, but the president has shown willingness to sort of defer to military leaders, or at least he says that he has um, uh, on these sort of operational questions bit by bit. We know there's acute danger here, the risk of uh, another terror attack. We were told that it was specific and credible today from John Kirby at the White House. I'd love to hear from both of you in our remaining moments about what you, you might expect to see this weekend, not in terms of an attack, but the posture of our military. Tony, expanding the perimeter around the airport, possibly. You suggested maybe even working with the Taliban in some sort of a mission here. Uh, But why don't you start off, Tony, and what we might see. It's dark now in Kabul as we head through Saturday and Sunday. How concerned you are and what we might see the military up through the next two days? Well, I would think, if they're smart, though, we'll show some footage of AC-130 gunships circling, orbiting over the area, Uh, the MQ-9 Reaper orbiting over the area. General McKenzie mentioned these the other day. Yes. If they're smart, they will show some of that as a, a visual presentation. They might show expanded uh, ex- expanded entry points, uh, reinforcements of those areas, but I think the aerial component, you can show that, send a message that we've got eyes on the field with very discreet sensors. That's right. I don't. I forget if it was uh, uh, Hank Taylor or General McKenzie yesterday made clear, Tony, that just the sight, having having essentially such an intimidating sight, a C-130 gunship light things up in the air, has shown to be a deterrent in the past, right? Yeah, the AC-130 gunship is ungainly propeller-driven, but it, i got to tell you, this is one of the wep- major weapons of the last 40 years the United States employs. The big Mogadishu in Somalia, the big argument there was, why didn't we deploy AC-130s? But those things, when there's, when there's no air defense threat, they can circle slowly and pound the living daylights out of an area with very precision howitzers and uh, mini, mini machine guns. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. If you don't know what uh, Tony's talking about, Google it. Uh, Justin, how about politically speaking at the White House? Are we going to be seeing the president on a daily basis? Uh, we've got Sunday shows to deal with. How is the communications and messaging going to work coming out of the White House this weekend? Yeah, so we, we know the president's already sort of canceled his planned vacations. He's going to receive briefings on this. I wouldn't be surprised if we hear from him uh, either on Afghanistan or, of course, the hurricane that's sort of barreling towards Louisiana right now over the weekend. Uh, the White House has also said that he... Um, uh, is, is likely to reach out to some of the families of the service members that are lost. There's the possibility, um, as the flights come back into Dover, that the president would would go up to receive uh, some of the fallen soldiers there. And, and so I think we will see some of those type of uh, messaging slash, uh, you know, mourner-in-chief type yeah. images coming out of the White House. But, you know, obviously this... The, the political fallout of the last couple of weeks is going to be severe for the president and something that the, the White House is going to have to work a long time to sort of uh, get it to pull itself out of. Because right now, I think there's 
there's legitimate bipartisan criticism on both sides and disappointment with how the White House is handled. Boy, the next couple of days are going to be something. Our Friday Reporters Roundtable. This is why we do this with such talent here at Bloomberg. White House correspondent Justin Sink, Pentagon correspondent Tony Capaccio. Many thanks to both of you for your expertise. And that is it. The fastest hour in politics. We'll do it again Monday. Keep your eyes on the news and on the terminal this weekend. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.